This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down in person with Jason Rick. Jason is the owner and operator of Rick Ranches, and we were in beautiful Crawford, Colorado, discussing everything about regenerative agriculture, proper management style of cattle, as well as Bitcoin and decentralization. This was a great conversation. You're going to enjoy it. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We are live here in beautiful Crawford, Colorado with Jason Rick. Jason, thanks for having me. How's it going today? Oh, it's fantastic. Thanks for uh, being here. I appreciate you coming and making the time to come out and talk to us here on the ranch. So having a tiny bit of technical difficulties here with just one mic, so we're going to pass it back and forth. But yeah, been out here before for the Beef Initiative, which is crazy. It was, what, July? So almost almost a year ago and made so many connections here. I mean, at that time was, you know, had barely any following or anything, kind of just diving into this space. And it's crazy how much can transpire in a year. So I'm excited to hear more about how your year has been and what you think of, you know, the future. But, um, you know, you're a regenerative rancher right now and obviously into Bitcoin as well, which we'll tap into, but you did not, you know, start in this space. So I'm curious, you know, let's hear your backstory a little bit. I know there's some coal mining and then kind of really diving into, you know, becoming a steward of the land. So yeah, how did you get to where you are now and kind of what shaped your mindset on why this type of management style is so important? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Hotchkiss, Colorado. It's a little town about um, 15 minutes from where we are now. And uh, worked on a fishing boat in Alaska for a summer, joined the Marine Corps, uh, worked four years um, in the Marine Corps as aviation ground support equipment electrician. And uh, when my four-year hitch was up, I came back and went to work in the coal mines and actually worked as an underground coal miner for 15 years, um, producing steam coal, so power generation, uh, manufacturing, heating coal. And through that, I really, it really helped me understand kind of energy and the importance of that in our economy. While I was still working at the coal mine, I um, proposed to my in-laws that I lease their ranch because I saw so many of these practices that were being used were just really degrading the soil and they're kind of hard as far as uh, environmental sustainability. And so they very reluctantly agreed to allow me to lease their place. And so we've actually been, I've been leasing this place for our 15th year. And we started implementing some of those practices that we had read about, but more importantly, Practices that my grandfather had taught me as a young boy, you know, ways to take care of the land, the soil, the animals, and then also feed people back to the way that my grandfather did and my great-grandfather did, you know, before there were vaccines and before there were antibiotics for animals, um, before there was synthetic fertilizer, all of those things where you really had to pay attention to what you were doing. And through those experiences and those teachings and my, my grandfather just pouring all of that information on me because I was the only grandchild of uh, 
26 grandkids who had any interest in agriculture at all. And um, I oftentimes hear him speaking in my head when I'm doing things that I'm doing now, you know, going back to the lessons that he taught me. And for him, it wasn't regenerative. It wasn't, you know, sustainable. It wasn't, it was just the way that it had to be done to have any success. And what you had to do to have healthy plants and healthy animals is just do the right thing by them and do your best to try and work with nature and not against it. Unfortunately, big ag has pushed us more towards this um, kind of fiat mindset, fiat lifestyle that you just need to buy more inputs, buy bigger tractors. And for me, it's the opposite. I want to get to the point where I don't even have to use tractors when I just let the cattle do what they were meant to do. And that's just graze on the land. Yeah, I think that's so important. We've really, I mean, the whole system in general is very high input, high output. I mean, it's like the American industrial complex. And we think the more we can, you know, put in work and build these bigger machines to help us, the more output we can get. But in general, we're we're fighting against nature, like you said. So that's really important to highlight. That's awesome. And it's cool that, yeah, that coal mining background, I'm sure that, yeah, that's shaped kind of a good perspective on yeah how energy is created i'm sure you have a lot of opinions on on that and you know obviously got shut down the plants and you know talk about like renewable energies and the very piss poor <laughs> energy density actually that goes in i was talking about that yesterday with someone um but i'm curious was there so you had this mindset from like your grandfather's input um, was that something that you just carried and you knew you wanted to get into agriculture and ranching? You were just looking for a way to get into it. Um, and then did you have that that mindset in the back of your head for like, you know, what you would call like regenerative holistic management the whole time? Or is there kind of like a, a turning point and you said you're reading about stuff or you, you know, looking in the Savory Institute or places like that? Yeah, so I had an idea, but I complete transparency, I approached it from a a conventional standpoint. Like when we got into the cattle business, we were buying registered Angus cattle with the idea that we were going to be selling registered Angus bulls. And that was going to be our moneymaker. And, and, you know, you buy, you go in debt to buy cows, you go in bet in debt to buy a tractor, all of these things that we thought we had to, because that's what the land grant universities tell us. That's what our extension agents tell us. Right. Um, and, very quickly, I realized that that's not financially sustainable or viable and that we needed to look at other avenues of how to do it. And to go along with those, those, that same mindset is the, the cattle market is very fickle, but people have to eat no matter what. And so we started looking at, well, what do we do with these bulls or these heifers that aren't going to make it into our breeding program. And so when we butchered one for ourselves, we, I mean, the meat was the best we'd ever had. And we shared it with friends and family and they were like, well, this is really what you should be doing because this is way better than you can get at the grocery store. So that's what really spurred on that direct to consumer. Um, And of course I, I'm a nerd. Like if I get into something, I get totally into it and I read everything that I can find. I watch every YouTube video that I can find. um, And then I experiment that end of one experiment, you know, that we do with our health. I do the same thing with my land practices and my animal uh, husbandry practices. Like, let's see how far we can push this in the opposite direction of whatever the preconceived notions are, whatever the, the, um, the prescriptive 
way of doing things that big ag is con- trying to convince us to do. Why are we doing it that way? Should we be doing it? Question everything and then figure it out for yourself. And so for us, I mean, whether it was Joel Salatin, whether it was Gabe Brown, whether it was, you know, uh, Alan Savory and the Savory Institute, uh, Cold Harbor Regenerative, just all of these organizations that are really pushing, pay attention to what's happening around you and do what actually works for you and whatever your own iteration of that is. And so for me, I've been experimenting with that ever since. And with the locally adapted cattle that we have, the improvements that we've done on the pastures that we take care of, um, plant diversity, uh, parasite resistance, everything that we're doing, we're picking the cattle that do the best in our environment to keep in the herd. And that way they're going to have calves that are already locally adapted. And so, but you have to pay attention to that. You can't just back pour everything. You can't just worm everything. You can't just give more shots. You actually have to back away from that. And the ones that can't handle that just go away. They end up in the freezer. And the ones that thrive, that are fat and sassy and slick all the time, those are the ones that you want to keep in the herd and keep calves out of those cattle. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I want to talk more about the benefits of everything you're doing and the observational science that, that you have seen. But I want to kind of ruminate on this point and this, you know, what happens to the average, you know, rancher. So you're talking about these field agents and the USDA, they have these recommendations. Like maybe you could talk a little bit about how that actually works. You know, say I just bought some land, I go the traditional route, go to the field office and I ask them for recommendations. What sort of feedback do they give? Are any of them like, you know, is there a spectrum? And then the mindset that you had, you know, it seems like, yeah, you're a bit more rebellious, do your own research, you want to dive in. But was there still like a, hey, like, wow, I'm just completely going against the grain here. And, you know, was, yeah, what was your mindset in that time? I'm just curious. Yeah. So, so you go talk to them and they give you a lot of handouts and like the grazing plan handout that they give you is like 15 or 20 pages. And it was written by land grant universities in the seventies. And it, it doesn't even talk, it talks about rotational grazing, but if you follow the plan that's set forth in that, that's rotational overgrazing is really what it is. Because what I'm finding is a brief pasture grazing and long-term duration rest is that's that's the secret sauce that's the magic um the other thing too is they give you a handout on um weed control like the list of noxious weeds and the sprays that work best to eradicate those weeds which were what i found is if you graze those at certain times of the year and certain times in their life cycle the cows will eat them right to the nubs which then knocks them back versus spraying them, um, their response is to just make more plants, right? Because you're going you're gonna to spray them and they're like, oh, we're going to be poisoned. And then they just spread bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, the other thing too is they uh, recommend you do a soil analysis. And then the lab gives you a recommendation, recommendation on how much synthetic fertilizer to apply to get to your optimum yields. Um, and so that was a kind of leery. I was leery of that. Number one, because synthetic fertilizer is simply salt. It is salt compounds. 
and we've already known what salt does to the land. Anytime you've seen where you've salted, let's say your sidewalk, and it kills the grass or the flowers next to the sidewalk. It's like, well, that that doesn't really make sense to me. Sure, it feeds the plants, but actually kills the soil, kills the soil microbes. So that that I, I would just that was a red flag for me. And then the other thing too is they talk about how much irrigation water that you have and the the most um, efficient ways of applying it. Well, and that's in sprinklers, but oftentimes when you're just misting water above it, you're not getting that deep soaking you know, um, soil moisture holding type of type of irrigation. Sure. We use a lot of irrigation, um, that runs through sprinklers, but we also use a lot of gated pipe and a lot of ditch irrigation. And what I will find is that that less efficient irrigation, the moisture stays in the ground longer and the plants are actually more resilient. Whereas in under sprinkler irrigation, if you have a short irrigation year, the plants dry out much faster and the soil dries out much faster as well. And so there's just so many things that they were telling me and, and um, information that they were giving me was just kind of counterintuitive for me, especially from what I learned from my grandfather, which really gave me pause. Like maybe I need to look into this a little bit more. Maybe I need to do some of my own research. Um, and so that's kind of like when you go to the doctor and they're like, take this pill. And you're like, well, that pill actually made me feel worse in this way. Maybe I need to do some research on what this pill is actually doing to me. And maybe there's something I can change in my health practices, my diet, exercise, sleep, something that could actually treat what's wrong with me versus just taking this pill. And so that's probably the biggest thing that was a red flag for me. Um, I wanted to be a good boy. I wanted to be a part of the good old boys club. Um, now, Many of my neighbors have finally started accepting the practices that I do, but there are still many of them that are like, yep, you're the hippie cowboy that moves your cows every two or three days, builds miles and miles of electric fence, you know, and don't spray your weeds and, just, you know, don't, don't do all the things we've been told to do. Um, but then they also see the potential profitability for them if they adopted some of those practices and just didn't buy more fertilizer or just didn't buy more crop insurance or just didn't buy a bigger tractor, um, just focusing on the land, plants, and animals. Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, I think that's what I expected. It's for sure. It's kind of daunting, but it's, it's cool that you had that, you know, that intuition from what your grandfather taught you. I mean, that's something obviously a, a lot of people don't have, or they had what my grandfather taught me. And that was the wrong thing. Actually, it's the more conventional method. And that's, you know, to no fault of their own, right? They could be third, fourth generation, you know, conventional ranchers and producers. And that's just like, you know, because in the 60s, 50s, like they just had some nitrogen salesmen telling them to do X and then they get more yield and they're just trying to support their family and their business. And that's how it kind of evolved to this. And then you get 70 years later and, and here we are. So I'm curious, you're saying these people, you know, were they trying to recommend you, like your neighbors against doing these things uh, in at first? And then, you know, now they're starting to finally come around and, and ask questions and, you know, how do, how do we convince these people 
that this stuff does matter? I guess, what's the most effective way that, that you've found? Because it is really hard. You don't want to just go tell people what they should be doing. I think leading by example, like you're doing, is, is probably the best way. But I'm curious, and has that dynamic changed in the past you know, three years? Well, it usually comes down to dollars and cents. Like you have to prove it to them that they can make more money, you know, on the same land base. And that's the hardest thing to do. And honestly, I found uh, changing their mind is the hardest thing to do. You know, it's just like most people, it's like you have uh, your habits and you have your preferences and and it's hard to change that because you're comfortable there. Because if you step out of that, then you're in this whole new world. Um, but what they have seen is some of these properties that we have doubled the stocking density on these properties, um, increased the, the plant resiliency, especially in these drought years that we've been in. So we're grazing longer than anyone else. And then when we come out of it, the grass stays greener longer and the cattle are in better condition and we feed less hay. And that comes down to dollars and cents. So for people that are having to buy hay, if they can string out some electric fence and, and graze their stockpiled forage before they feed hay, that's an actual dollar and cents savings that they can see and realize. So that's one way that I've been able to get through to them. The other thing too is as I don't want anyone to change 100% because then if it goes sideways, then it's my fault. Whereas for me, if I can convince them to save 10 heifers or save 10 steers just to feed and sell direct to consumer and see how much more profitability there is in that versus selling all of them on a video auction or selling them all at the sale barn in the fall, they realize they can essentially double their money just by keeping those calves another year. And so there's another real dollars and cents motivator for them. Um, but they, they're worried about the liability. They're like, well, what if that calf dies in that year that I've had it longer? I'm like, well, if you're going to double your money on 10 head, 10 head and um, one of them dies, you're still going to make more money on the nine head that you were able to market direct to consumer. And then they talk about, well, how much work it is marketing direct to consumer, which is, it is a ton of work. I mean, you're always customer service. Like I'm on the phone or emailing, texting back and forth customers a lot. Uh, so what I've suggested to them is if they're interested in using my genetics and following my practices, I could market them for them, um, for, for a cut of the, of the money, you know, and of course most people being very independent, you know, ranchers and farmers are very independent folks. If they're going to do the work of keeping them for another year, they don't want to share that money with anyone else. And then I explained to them, they've been doing that exact same thing with the feedlot and the packers with all of those calves that they've been selling directly into the, the market. And and then they have the realization of how the market capture is and how they've been getting screwed over essentially with what it is that they're doing and the system that they're selling into, which then helps me open their eyes to the potentials 
And that's typically when I give them a little orange pill at the same time, you know, because when the value, your values of the dollar are being eroded every day, everybody needs a life raft. And so not only can I bring them over to regenerative ag, I can also introduce them into the world of Bitcoin at the same time. But some people have bit, you know, and sometimes when I don't have anything to sell and I direct one of my Bitcoin customers to them, then they reinforce the orange pill that it's not just something that Jason is blue skying about some crazy, you know, Harry Potter money, you know, that no one understands um, that it's real people transact in it. Um, and so then, then we start building that circular economy of Bitcoin in conjunction with the local economies of direct to consumer beef. Yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, it really goes hand in hand. So, I mean, thank you for doing this type of work because it's like so important. And I think, like you're saying, you can't just tell people exactly what to do or, you know, to do it my way. It's it's like you have to inspire the curiosity. But at the end of the day, what's decentralization all about? It's like self-accountability, going to do the work. Like that's the proof of work is like, changing your ideas and being open-minded, but then going and doing it yourself, experimenting. So it's awesome to hear that that folks are coming around. Um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the whole direct-to-consumer because I think it's for sure got to be the biggest issue with the whole, you know, meat system is right that, you know, I don't know the percentage, but 90 plus percent of, you know, producers are just selling to, you know, the big four packing companies and they're seeing, you know, a small fraction of what they could sell. And it's just this multi-stage process. It makes everything so centralized. The connection between the consumer and the producer is so broken. So it's, you know, twofold. And the way I see it is, you know, consumers need to drive some change and, and want to go direct to their, you know, rancher and shake the rancher's hand. And, and that's fantastic. But there has to be, you know, more Jason Ricks out there. And how do you see that kind of evolving? Because say, you know, you're out here in Crawford. I know you go to the front range to Denver a lot. I mean, there's, you know, big population centers in Denver, Salt Lake City within, you know, six hour drive of here is, how does someone who's never, you know, gotten started with direct to consumer marketing really kind of start and where do they begin? Is it just local farmers markets? And then in a very rural setting, it's tough. And then you could get into like the whole shipping of meat thing, which we have to do in, in Wyoming because we have no population centers and it becomes actually really expensive and, and logistically difficult unless you have the capital to start. So I'm curious, you know, how you see, how do we purvey this movement of direct to consumer forward even more in the next five, 10 years? That's a great question. And honestly, if I had a good silver bullet answer for that, I would be a millionaire and I would be a consultant for helping new direct to consumer businesses. You know, how we started was, you know, we shared some with friends and family. And that word of mouth advertising really has been the strongest. And then we helped start a small farmer's market here in Crawford. And so we would sell beef there. And essentially that was what got our name out and our brand out. So I put our sign and logo on the side of our truck, you know, with the phone number. And, and then we kind of went to social media, you know, and, and used that free advertising on social media to kind of reach more and more consumers. You know, and then we we 
went in with Texas Slim and, and Cole and, and JP and, and founded the Beef Initiative, which has now gone international. But we have a, a website, you know, thebeefinitiative.com that shows you uh, producers and you can search state by state and find producers close to you. Um, I had been introduced to Bitcoin, you know, first in 2017, and I really should have bought a lot more Bitcoin then. But I did some research, but that helped me introduce to a lot of people who had similar priorities and similar virtues with me as far as being a regenerative rancher, because these Bitcoiners and me included, we're all about self-accountability and taking control of your own health as part of that self-accountability journey. And so you want to source the best protein that you can to feed yourself and your family. And that's really helped drive our reach is finding those people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is. One of the hardest things with grass fed and grass finished beef is the consistency. Every single animal kind of finishes at its own rate. And so you're constantly hand picking out the calves that are ready to go to the butcher as, as it goes through the butcher season. So that, and, and I communicate that with my customers, like, you know, because we're not in a feedlot and because we're not feeding byproducts, I can't gauge how much gain they're going to have and how quickly they're going to finish and how much fat, you know, back fat they're going to have. And so my customers understand that. And that's actually what they're looking for. You know, they want cows to be cows. They don't want cows to be factories, which is what it is when you're feeding byproducts or you're in a feedlot, you're using that system as a factory to produce beef. They want all the nuances that comes with every different cow, you know, or steer, heifer, or whatever happens to be. And so I would say for direct consumers, start small, you know, because your following will come if you can provide, number one, a top-notch product, number two, the customer service that's required to go along with it, and then number three, stand behind your product. If you ever have a consumer that does not have a happy eating experience, whatever that happens to be, whether it's a bone chip in their ground beef, which happens, you know, whether it's a mislabeled package that the butcher screws up at the end of the day, it's your product, right? You're using, excuse me, using the butcher. You have to stand wholly behind it and you have to make sure that that customer has a happy experience, whether it's a credit, full replacement, whatever that happens to be. And you have to know that going in. If you're so cash strapped that you can't do that, um, maybe you need to start with something else that you can turn over more regularly, whether it's vegetables, whether it's chickens, whether it's eggs, um, hogs, something that you can turn over more rapidly than beef. Because I've been in that situation before where you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay this next bill? And then I also need to refund these people whatever for their, you know, whatever the bad experience was. Um, but you'll also have, you'll find that you have the Karens and you can't make them happy no matter what, you know what I mean? And so those are the ones that you make right, whether it's a full refund, let them keep the meat. And then you, you just burn that fridge. They're no longer your customers. And I've only had a couple, 
right? And I realize that that when I see their, you know, on on my um phone, caller ID, I just don't answer it, right? Because number one, my time's valuable. And number two, I don't think I could ever make them happy. And so, but you have to be prepared for that. And we are our own biggest critic, no matter what, right? Those of us that are striving for excellence beat ourselves up more than anyone else. And so you have to get in your own head and realize that I'm making up this story of someone not liking my meat, right? And that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I'm doing the best that I can, no matter what. I'm doing the best for the land, the best for the plants, the best for the animals, and the best for my end consumers. And that's all I can do. I can't do any more than my very best. But like I always tell my consumers, I always want constructive criticism or things that you think I could do better or that you would like to see done differently because this business is ever evolving. And I want to be here for the long haul. This is not a flash in the pan, get rich quick scheme. You know, there's no venture capital. It's solely sweat equity. We own no land, but we manage 4,000 acres. And some of it now, the landowners are actually paying me to graze it because they see the value in what we do. And they're already getting their 2% per year, you know, accrual in land values going up. They just want someone, someone that's responsible for the land. But I have to show up and do my best for them every day. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Yeah, I think that's, it's really what it's all about. I mean, for me, it's like you kind of have to, like anything in this space, you have to put yourself out there first. Like you can't be afraid, oh, you know, what if people don't like it? Or, you know, what if we lose money? Like, I think what you said, starting small with just, you know, a few animals, you have to put yourself out there in some regard. And people are hungry for transparency right now. Like, that's all I know. There's a lot of people who have woken up the past three years. They're tired of being lied to. They're tired of just not being able to know, especially where their food comes from. And that food security perspective as well frightened a lot of people. So there's more than plenty customers out there. And I think that's just going to continue to grow. So the sooner you do put yourself out there, I mean, you're just going to, the sooner you're going to bear the fruits of that. And I think it's really important, but it is hard. And yeah, you might like, you know, I was talking to Ben yesterday, he's driving to tell your ride in Aspen. And it's like, yeah, you might need to do that to, to sell your meat because you have to know where the consumers are that are a, you know, willing to pay and b you know, just, don't have that um, in that area specifically. If all the ranchers are up here, like you have to go to where the customers are sometimes. And that can be a lot of work, but that word of mouth will then spread. And then maybe, you know, three years down the line, you won't have to do that or you make, you know, one trip a month or however you go to the front range, I think in that frequency um, more or less. But that's really interesting. And I want to maybe talk a little bit about how how do you sell your meat now as being a premium product because it is clearly and how has that evolved and you know the measurable changes i think that you've noticed in you know the soil quality the health of the animals you know really how are you selling it as a premium product compared to grocery store beef just walk me through that walk the listeners through that um assuming we have no idea right so for us, we are a grass-fed, grass-finished, all-natural, 
no antibiotics, no hormones, no grain, no byproducts ever. Um, and this year we're actually no vaccinations. So we gave our calves no vaccinations when we branded this spring. And that means that they have had, never had any pharmaceuticals ever in their entire life. So it's just cows being cows. And so from that standpoint, unlike conventional grocery store beef, which oftentimes you're given calf hood vaccines, potentially treated with um, antibiotics and or subtherapeutic antibiotics because you have uh, feed stimulants that they use that are actually antibiotics that help them gain weight better that they use a lot in, in feedlots. And then you have, they're fed whatever the cheapest feedstuffs are in the feedlot. So if they're close to a candy factory, they'll grind candy and mix that in their ration. If they're close to an ethanol plant, it'll be dried distil distiller's grains. Um, if they're close to a poultry barn, they'll feed them pelletized chicken litter, you know, which will have feathers and manure and, and um, sawdust and shavings all mixed in it. It'll be pelletized and fed to them. Um, if they're if they're close to a rendering facility, uh, oftentimes they'll take rendered fat, and that will go into their um, you know so fat from other beef cattle that's then fed back to the cattle um, as the protein portion of their their feedstuffs. And and also human food waste, depending on what what kind of human food waste it is, they'll be fed back to cattle. Whereas for ours, they're eating pasture that they're harvesting themselves or they're eating hay that we either put up ourselves or that we buy. And that's it. On our place and on the properties that we manage, we use no synthetic fertilizers and we also use no herbicides or pesticides at all whatsoever. Um, whereas, of course, if you're in a feedlot and you're feeding silage, that silage corn or silage alfalfa has been... You know, if it's Roundup ready, it's been sprayed with Roundup when it's young to keep the weeds down. And then it's been side dressed with all kinds of fertilizers and then fungicides, pesticides, whatever happens to be. Because you, you essentially have to kill everything else for whatever your forage stuff is to, to live and thrive. Um, and so from that standpoint, it's like the purest, like we call it pure beef protein because it's just what the beef can do themselves with no, not being propped up at all. And so that's what sets, really sets us apart. The other thing too is we are conception to plate. I mean, we raise our own bulls. We buy some top bulls, carcass bulls. And so from, from conception, literally all the way to the last day of that animal, those cattle have been on the properties that we manage. And so we know every single step in the supply chain. Many of our grass-fed and grass-finished producers are buying conventional cattle and then finishing them on grass and then butchering them. So you don't know what happened to those calves. You don't know what they were exposed to in utero. Um, you don't know what kind of treatments they had before, you, you, um, before they went to the, the final finisher. Whereas for us, we are, we are still to this day conception to plate. And our, as our market continues to get bigger, we're talking with some local producers that buy bulls from us to maybe help us by supplying calves for our program. 
they're still very leery of what the hippie rancher is doing, you know, and maybe they don't want to necessarily be associated with him. But if you look at the profitability potential, that's really what I think I'm going to use to help motivate them. The other thing too is our beef is dry aged for a minimum of 14 days. Most of your grocery store beef is wet aged because it's moving through a huge factory all the time. So it gets killed, eviscerated, skinned, cooled, chilled to room temperature, then down to cooled temperature. And then oftentimes a day or two later, cut into boxed beef or primals, put in a bag and ship somewhere else to either be further broken down or to go to a butcher case to then be the final cuts cutting off at a butcher shop. And so you don't, you get what they call wet aging, which oftentimes involves some sort of brine or they're sprayed with something. The other problem with that is then you have all of those touch points. So when they they do a beef recall, JBS or, or whoever does a, a beef recall, it's millions and millions and millions of pounds. Whereas our butchers are processing typically six in a whole day. So it's killed, hung in the cooler, 14 days, comes out, and they cut up that one beef into all of its final cuts, and then it gets frozen. So you have so much less exposure as well. So from a food safety standpoint, it's much safer than grocery store beef in that way. Um, They're still ahead to the held to the same very stringent um, USDA and state regulations and county regulations, but there's a lot less touch points and it's supporting a small local butcher versus a multinational, you know, meatpacking corporation. Yeah. I think it's like, there's such a spectrum of like grass fed beef and it's, it's actually been watered down so heavily the past, you know, five years. It's incredible. And you really have to know um, what you're looking for if you're going to shop in a grocery store. But the only way to truly verify for me is to come, you know, shake your rancher's hand and ask these tough questions at a farmer's market. And don't be afraid to do that because even the people that are grass fed, grass finished, like you're saying, they're not, you know, the whole life cycle of the cow may not be in their hands. They might be spraying or it might be, you know, feeding GMO grain or grasses or whatnot. And, it's really hard to get, you know, 100% grass fed and 100% what you would call like all natural, in my opinion. And it's something to say about like doing that. And I'm curious as well, are you, are you processing only on the state level or is it USDA here as well? Because I know you're mostly in state sales. Yeah. So we do both. We do custom butcher and we do USDA and the, the, Reason we do USDA is because they print our logo on all the labels automatically if we do USDA. So that way we have that brand recognition on all of those packages. And then we also sell to a few uh, small boutique grocery stores and some caterers that need to have USDA inspected meat for them um, in case an inspector ever came and inspected them. Uh, The options in the custom are a lot better as far as doing a primal blend on the ground beef if you want you know where you blend organs in in the ground beef whereas the usda facility won't do that because when they do their grind um 
they don't stop in between animals. So they grind your whole grind, but they don't tear the machine apart, clean it. They just go to the next. And so that way, um, they, they aren't willing to do that unless you have enough animals processed that day that you, they will only be grinding your meat. Then they'll do that for you. Uh, whereas custom it's, it's no big deal because they're only doing one animal at a time. Yeah. And, and processing in general, right? Like I know Texas slim and everyone, you guys have talked about how big of an issue processing is. I think a lot of people know that. I don't think they really understand the full degree of like how, you know, imposing the USDA can be and how the big four packing companies are are really in control of like the big processing plants and that market access is a huge issue. How have you seen that like in your experience, you know, change and and what do you think needs to happen to kind of help solve that issue? Is it more like these local butcher state run facilities or is it even something different for for beef are you interested in 100 grass-fed grass-finished bison meat i'm excited to be a partner with falls family ranches based in wyoming falls family ranches is raising high quality bison meat the way nature intended as a native large ruminant of north america bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume if you're interested in trying out their bison boxes Use code Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Well, and honestly, what I like is on-farm kill. That way you can keep all the byproduct on-farm composted and spread all those nutrients back on the fields. Yeah, exactly, because that's what our custom butcher does. He actually comes on-farm. We kill on-farm. That way I keep the hides here. Um, and then compost whatever guts that we're not going to keep. Um, but the, the financial, um, backing that you need to start your own processing facility is insane. And the, the legislature and the rules are based on huge packing plants. So if you look at like how far it has to be from the kill floor to a washing facility to the clean floor, the dimensions are so big because it's based on a huge kill plant. So that's one thing that we've been working with down in Texas with Texas Slim and the state inspectors and now the USDA in Texas is scaling those measurements down to reality of microprocessors when you're only going to be doing six beeves in a day because the exposure is so much less, right? You may only have two or three employees in the entire plant versus 3000, like in some of these JBS plants. And, and so, and Texas has been very receptive to that. Um, in Colorado, we don't have state inspectors. It's either USDA or it is county health inspectors. And so there, there's a little bit of leniency that, that we've been working on. My goal, my end game would be to have our own butcher facility and our own retail storefront on site. And, and that's because we're looking at a lot of people don't want to buy an eighth of a beef because they, they have the money to not want to have to cook the roasts or whatever, or they don't want to eat that much ground beef. So they're willing to pay a premium to just buy ribeyes, right? Well, you have to have a place to be able to market that to them. I mean, we have a retail license here off the ranch, 
but I'm selling most of my beef as eighths, quarters, halves, and whole beeves, just because when you piece part out, eventually you wind up with something that no one else wants, which doesn't really bother us because we love eating roast, especially in the winter. You put it in the crock pot in the morning, and by dinner time, you have this super tender fall apart dinner. Um, but if you had a retail storefront, then you could market whatever those sales are to move whatever it is, those individual cuts. You could invite other producers who raise hogs, goats, lamb, um, chickens, eggs. You have a place to bring all of those things together in one brick and mortar facility where, you know, you can share all of that um, bounty with the entire community. Because we spend a lot of time building community, bartering, trading boars back and forth for breeding, you know, our sows, um, and also the employees. I mean, if you can have two, three, four jobs, full-time jobs that are supporting the community as well, I mean, that is so huge in a community as small as Crawford, Colorado. Um, and then bringing back the artisanal portion of it, because there are so many cuts that we have lost. I mean, we have, we have, there's list, literally cuts that everyone used to cook back in the days, you know, a standing rib roast or a um, bone-in chuck steak or, you know, all, all of the arm roast, all of these different things. When you start talking about that, everyone's like, well, I've never seen that in a grocery store or whatever. Um, to bring those back and then also get more people cooking at home. Like, here's the recipe recommendation for this cut of meat that you get when you come buy it at Rick Ranch's, you know, West Elk Mountain Market or whatever it happens to be. Um, and the profitability. I mean, the butcher that we use that is the USDA facility, they just finished a million dollar expansion on their cooler and freezer. So that goes to show what the profitability is. I mean, when I'm paying $850 a head and I'm doing 40 a year and I'm one small producer, I mean, a good friend of mine and competitor of mine, they do over 400 beeves a year and they use the same processor. So you look at just how much potential there is, you know, and I've been talking to a few venture capital people, you know, and pretty much they're all in, but right now, I mean, I'm, I'm a one man band. Luckily my, my, my son is helping me irrigate here on the home place, but this time of year is just insane as far as trying to raise enough forage to be able to survive through the winter. Yeah, I think that's, it's important to shed light on this. I think the more you can get, I mean, for people who don't understand, the more you can sell like, yeah, smaller cuts of meat, you know, you make more money per animal and, and that's really important. And and getting into that, it's like the, I guess the financial side and, and the profitability and kind of your story with, with Bitcoin as well. Someone explained, I don't know, um, we had Mitch, a regenerative rancher on from Utah. I don't know if it was his, but it's like for a long time, like ranchers, you know, they held their savings was kind of in their soil, right? Because it's like you can keep, you know, increasing and, and you're getting that return. But now, you know, that that maybe that 2% of savings a year compared to the, you know, inflation of our monetary system is just, you can't keep up. And the people who are degrading the soil, they're even in a bigger hole. So, I'm curious how you tie Bitcoin into, you know, helping keep things afloat and have that long term horizon of, you know, helping the ranch and the whole business become more profitable. And then also tying that into, you know, investing into the soil as like a savings bank to continue to, you know, increase stocking density or, or what have you. Yeah. So Bitcoin, you know, we accept Bitcoin for beef. 
And that all goes into cold storage, except for what's in my hot wallet. And that's what I use to transact in Bitcoin. You know, we buy um, Alpa bars, you know, and um, coffee and wine and whatever. Um, start nine, you know, start nine labs node. I did all of these things that you can buy with Bitcoin. I, I'm interested in that circular economy, but most of it goes into cold storage with the idea that it appreciates, you know, a hundred percent every having pretty well. I mean, it, it's never gone back below from where the low was before, which unlike the U S dollar, I mean, they're saying 7%, but in reality, it's definitely 12%. And then if you look at what your what goods you can buy, it's closer to 20%. Because if you look at what land around here is done in dollar value, everyone's like, we can't believe what dirt's worth. And I, and I keep telling them, it's not what dirt is worth. It's actually what dollars are worth. The dirt is worth the same. Your dollars are just worth less. And it takes that much more dollars to buy the same dirt. And they kind of look at me sideways and then they have this realization and then you can see they're like sick to their stomach by the realization of, oh my gosh, a, a pickup that you could buy eight years ago was $60,000 and now it's $100,000. Exact same pickup, but your dollars are just worth that much less because there isn't any more in that pickup than what was available eight years ago. And so that's where I see Bitcoin as this appreciating asset, but also a, a, a media of exchange, which is permissionless, semi-safe, um, and, and totally transparent. You know, you have people that argue like, well, they can trace it back through for forensics and on and on and on and on and on. I'm like, well, you just swiped your credit card. And that has your ID and your ad, actual physical address and your picture and everything. Social security number, tax ID number, all of that's on there, you know? Um, so how is that any safer, you know, anyways? And so then, and then the thing with soil, and this is what I preach to people, and this is where people get really woo-woo with me. The land is the actual legacy that we leave behind for the next generation. Because if you have a bunch of money and you pass away and your kids inherit it, they're just going to piss it away for the most part. No big deal. Thanks, dad. Thanks, mom. You know, but building soil and improving the planet and giving your children an opportunity to farm for another generation built on the back of all the work that you did, you can't put a price tag on that. You know, that, that is truly priceless. And the people that are plowing and just putting more and more and more inputs. I mean, if you look at what a paper thickness of soil over 80 acres costs, if you want needed to buy soil somewhere else and have it hauled back, it's imaginable. And every time you touch the dirt, that's how much soil is blowing away. You know, it took a millennia of bison working on the plains to build what we have. And there are places that there is no actual topsoil left where it was 20 or 30 feet thick before the Industrial Revolution. And, and now it's just inputs. Now it's plowing and it's synthetic fertilizer and GMO seed 
and I don't know how long it would take to revert it. One of the ranches that I lease, the, the former owner who died of cancer grew GMO corn to make silage. And I've been remediating that process um, through the process of planting annuals, grazing them, and then feeding on that land. So all of the manure, the urine, and all the wasted hay is on that ground. This will be the third year. And it's finally coming around where you can see any sort of actual life in that soil. Whereas before it was like the surface of the moon. It was like bug dust and rocks. Not even weeds would grow. Um, which, which just really broke my heart, but then it also really gave me pause for, you know, the, the, the old rancher that passed away from terrible cancer. And <clears throat> I helped him for the last five years while he was sick and going through treatment, you know, um, I'm thinking that I bet he, he wish he hadn't gone down that pharmaceutical train, you know, there's still original roundup metal cans, empty roundup cans there on that ranch you know and just every chemical you could imagine whatever they recommended you spray he did and uh, really paid the ultimate price for it and so that's the thing for me is i can't i can't preach enough you don't need it if you can change your mind yeah i think that's it's really powerful and yeah the whole bitcoin message i think it's awesome to see this, you know, intersection because it really is the the mindset of decentralization and and realizing, yeah, I mean, it doesn't. Everyone knows that things are just so much more expensive and inflation is high, but they don't really conceptualize as to why that's happening and you know what that means for them and how they should change, you know, their practices. I mean, before the show, we're talking a lot about consumerism and you know people just buying so much crap that they just don't need and then you know they come and see you know your website or your prices and they're like wow why, why would anyone want to pay that much for me that's a ripoff or something like that but they don't understand that a they're just not valuing things that do have value um because the nutrient per dollar of your beef is probably actually far higher than what's in the grocery store um and then two you should just be more comfortable paying for things that are going to give you a return on that investment, which if you're just buying, you know, material objects, there's no return and you're just, you know, wasting your money. That's, you know, you're making the same amount and salary, but everything's just, you know, costs more. So you're just caught up in the system. Um, but something also I want to dive into, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe, you know, like myself or just my age that they want to get into regenerative ranching or holistic management or buy their own land. And I think a lot of people, they get turned off by exactly what you said, you know, how expensive land is, um, exactly where to start, but leasing land is obviously a great option. And I know our friend Ryan Griggs, he's tweeted about like how much land will be exchanged in hands over the next decade because the average age of like farmers and ranchers is so high. So I guess maybe walk people through what it's like to lease land. How do you approach people? Um, It's obviously a community heavy thing. How did you get started? And yeah, what are some recommendations in this area? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so of course I had a family relationship with this property. Like when I started dating my wife, um, 
I was a free ranch laborer, right? I was trying to impress my, my hopefully soon to be father-in-law, you know, and I'm now replacing fence posts that I put in 25 years ago. And so that was an interesting situation, interesting dynamic. But many of my other leased properties, they were the roughest looking prairie dog ridden, you know, just, just rough properties. And so I go and approach the, let's say it's the widow and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in fixing up your place. I want to fix the fence on your place. You know, would you allow me to do that? And there'd be like, are you insane? You know, like no one has ever offered to do anything, but it starts a conversation, right? They, you can see there's a need. You can see that it's way more than they can manage themselves. And so you offer to help them. And it goes back to putting yourself out there, like what we were talking with the direct to consumer. And so you start, and oftentimes they just want someone to talk to, right? The little old lady needs someone to talk to. And then it starts this conversation. And so now it's to the point where some of these landowners that I work with, they're like, we don't know what we would do without you. You you essentially can do no wrong by them, but you got to put yourself out there. And because it is such a capital intensive business, because fencing is expensive. Uh, water infrastructure is expensive. Tractors, equipment, just everything about is expensive. Many of these ranches that I lease, they came with free use of the shops and the tractors and the implements, um, all of the irrigation infrastructure, because they were just happy to ha- see someone using it and taking care of it and servicing it. And so the, the, my biggest recommendation is decide where you want to live and then work backwards from there. Because any place that's beautiful, the land is really expensive. And oftentimes you will not get a return on investment farming and ranching it because the land cost is too high. So if you want to focus on being a regenerative farmer or rancher, go somewhere where they have rainfall and where land is cheap. And so that's probably going to be ugly. You know, uh, Oklahoma, parts of Texas, Kansas, um, parts of Nebraska. But if you want to live where it's beautiful, you just know that you're going to have to put in that much more work to be able to make it work. Um, I have lots of friends, you know, our regenerative family is pretty tight knit here in the North Fork Valley whether it is people that raise hogs or chickens, eggs, vegetables, you know, organic fruit, whatever it happens to be, we lean on each other for resources, but also we lean on each other for support. Like, how, how did you make that work? What are the dollars and cents of that? Not from a competitive standpoint, but for a, I'm struggling doing what I'm doing. What did you do to make it work for you? And that's where you have to start with community. I mean, we've had a lot of people come in and buy some of these properties and pay millions of dollars and they're going to come in and do their own thing. They alienate all the neighbors. And then when stuff goes sideways, they're by themselves, right? They didn't come and and immerse themselves in the culture and in the community and help out, you know, and really want to try and be part of the community. And that's one of the biggest thing is, is like ag, and rural America 
it's all the only way we survive is through the community that we have and from all of us supporting one another. You can't come in and, and do something um, and alienate everyone. And so you can find an old timer and work for him and help him. The thing for me and my biggest recommendation for people when they just flat out ask me, I'm like, well, get your finances in order that you can give up an entire year and you go find someone who's talking about retiring in whatever industry it is that you want to do and work for them for a year for free. Essentially intern for them, see all of the seasons, see the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, what their workflow looks like. And that will help you decide on whether you actually want to do that or not. But it's a, it's a real commitment. But if we don't have more people committing to do it, we're going to lose all of that knowledge because many of their children, many of those old timers children saw how hard mom and dad worked and they don't want anything to do with it. You know, and that's my kids. I am, I am raising them to be ranch owners, not necessarily ranch laborers because I want them to have the education that they can lean on for income, but also have the experience to be able to do it all themselves. So they know how it should be done because they've already done it themselves. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a, there's so many resources out there on how you can get started on your own, but it's all very region specific. And that's the thing that you have to adapt whatever you're going to do with wherever it is that you want to live. Yeah, I, th- I think everything you said is is something actually like I've realized in the past like six months. It's like, you know, you can get really eager. It's like, oh, I need to go buy like 100 acres and do all this. But it's like most people, they will for sure be biting off way more than they can chew. But I like how you said it's like, go find where you want to live. And you could even live in town and own, you know, a quarter acre. But then you know, you could, you know, intern or just chat with the local producers and ranchers and the lease land opportunities are, are always prevalent, especially in these areas that are, you know, quite aesthetic because, you know, yeah, these millionaires, billionaires just moving in and yeah, they might not give you the time of day, but eventually they they might value, you know, the fact that you could manage their land. They might even pay you like you're saying. Um, and also they're going to realize that it is valuable for the environment, the ecosystem, but the whole community aspect, I think that's something we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. And I talked about with Ben yesterday. It's it's something I'm really looking forward to tapping into more so in, in Wyoming the next year. And that's really what it's all about because you can't do everything on your own. So like decentralization, it's like people think it's like sometimes the lone wolf mentality. And it's, it is maybe at first, because you're leaving, you know, that old mindset, the old system, old friends behind. But in reality, you need to be, you know, the piece of a, you know, a community, a puzzle that's resilient because you're not that resilient fully on your own. I mean, the odds are that you're going to be a jack of all trades in the modern world is, is pretty low. And building that backbone of, you know, people to help you when, you know, they have their own expertise and that's how you really become outside the system is when you have, you know, a handful of, of skills that are all shared amongst a, a group of people. So it's it's inspiring. And yeah, there's all these, you know, Wolf and other internships, a lot of ranches. I mean, 
um, are willing to, you know, take on labor or even for a month or a few weeks, I'm sure they'd be happy to have anyone. I mean, I'm sure you'd be happy to have you know, some free labor for, for a few weeks or even a few days. So I would say reach out, you know, connect in within your community and yeah, don't be afraid again to put yourself out there, but you don't need that much land and it's likely way more work than you could ever imagine. And I can't even really speak to that, but um, <clears throat> I kind of want to also get into <clears throat> how we, you know, we're talking about what needs to happen to kind of solve this issue with our centralized ag and food system. We obviously need more folks doing what you're doing. We need it to be more decentralized, like small scale. And I know, you know, people like Joe Rogan are always, can we scale regenerative agriculture? And it's a really stupid question, to be honest. Um, but people have to ask it because it is, you know, it's, it's replication on local small scale. But it is interesting to consider, you know, what's out there. And I know I have done a little of these calculations and, and sent it to you. And it's, it's, it's really a thought experiment at, at best. But I'm just curious on, you know, things that you can concretely measure in, in your operation. So you said, I think you said you double the stocking density just by like your management practices. Do you see that like trend continuing on like the land? <clears throat> All right. I had a camera fall down. So we're back. So where are we at? Yeah. Just scaling regenerative agriculture. Um you're seeing like, you know, doubling of stocking densities over, you know, the years of, of land that you've managed. Are you also seeing that in terms of the new land that you're taking on? Like what's sort of the time period that it takes to achieve these stocking density improvements? Um, and how do you think, you know, I, I talk about, you know, the largest land that we have is there's so much public land that's like rangeland pasture, you know, the BLM land, it's like, really poor quality forage and you see these ranchers just throw out you know continuous grazing right they're just throwing cattle out there they're, i don't know how often they're checking on them you know maybe once a week or they're not really rotating them whatsoever so i'm curious if that's something you've ever looked into and how do we improve you know the forage quality in land that's so badly been overgrazed or just left to you know the vices of um nothing being on there and yeah how can we be like more innovative innovative about fixing this at i guess uh, a larger scale in terms of holistic management yeah so um for the most part the blm grazing is um pretty well managed there's lots of minimum standards there and they've actually because those standards were written in the 80s the cattle have gotten bigger and so they've reduced the stocking numbers on those on that ground. And a lot of it's for, for here in Colorado, it's passed through. So you might turn out onto the BLM June 1st, and then you might have the entire lot, but only be on there for a month, uh, grazing the early spring grasses, and mostly of which is um, invasive species of grass. So then you go into the Forest Service and uh, almost all of our allotments are seeing the benefit of doing a rotational grazing, even on the forest allotments, using electric fence and oftentimes miles and miles and miles of hard fence, and then grazing it in different patterns. So they'll go on the west side and graze, graze towards the, the east side one year, 
and they'll start vice versa on the next year. And what you see, and that's what I found with my rotational grazing, is if you graze different paddocks at different times of year, it allows different grasses or legumes um, time to mature and do better. So you're not grazing the same place the same time every year. So that that's one thing that cattle ranchers are doing on their own that are conventional cattle ranchers, conventional cow-calf operations here in Colorado. What I see is the people that are doing set stock grazing oftentimes are in places that have rainfall and they just turn the cattle out and it looks like a lawn all the time, right? And so you only have a very small subset of species that can survive in those environments. Whereas if they took those paddocks and they divided them in half and grazed half and then grazed the other half, they would see within the first year improvements. And then if they took that and divided in half again, I mean, you can see literally in one year improvements. One of the properties that we were on that I took um, the beef initiative on a tour of here at Rancho Largo, it had been conventionally farmed. Every weed had been sprayed. It was actually a uh, certified weed-free hay farm for many years. The previous three caretakers had all died of cancer. And so you can't tell me that that's completely coincidence, right? Um, but that was alarming to me, you know, when I learned of that. But we started and we divided it up into paddocks, two to three day paddocks. And within the end of the first season, you could see species of grasses, legumes, that you hadn't seen on some of those pastures before because they would just turn them out and they would just be there all season. So they would continuously graze the entire thing. And so they were only eating the good grass. So the good grass would always get eaten and the coarse, tall, rank stuff is what would be left behind. And so by us doing what we were doing, you immediately gave the more desirable grass opportunity to grow. and by focusing more grazing on some of the paddocks that had more tall, coarse grass, um, they would graze that tall, coarse grass, like the reed canary grass and the quack grass, they would graze it down because you would stay on it long enough to knock it back. Then I started hand spreading um, clover with my little hand spreader in those paddocks. And then I would graze it, let the cows push the seed in with their hooves and then irrigated after the cows went off. And we had fantastic results with that. And so we're to the point where we've prob we could probably more than double the actual grazing density on that property. We started with 25 animals in that rotation. Currently, I have 40 animals in that rotation, and we could very easily go probably 55 on that property. And so if you talk to a conventional cattleman, you can tell them that you can graze twice as many cows on the same amount of property. That's just simply dollars and cents. The problem with that is you have to have, be fluid enough that in a drought year that you have to be comfortable selling whatever the overage of cattle that you don't have enough grass to support. And that's the thing that we've started doing here. Like for instance, on our home place last year, we didn't graze any cattle on it at all during the summer because we had a very short irrigation year and we didn't hay any of it. We left all of that standing forage and we grazed it in the fall after it all went dormant. 
So not only did we let the grass go full life cycle, then we had tall stubble to catch the snow when it started to snow. So we had better snowpack on our our property than when it melted. We had better regrowth because we had stored more snow on the land. And that's one of the hardest things. Everyone says, I can't believe you're wasting all that grass because we leave standing forage behind in a pasture when we come off of it, which you have to leave solar panels on that grass for it to regrow rapidly. Whereas if you graze it really short, then it struggles and takes a lot longer to recover. And so we're not wasting it. We're going to use it eventually. It may not even be this year, but all of the nutrients that we're leaving on the soil and on the land then go right back in, you know, and get recycled by the earthworms and dung beetles and, you know, everything that's, that's there to do its job. Yeah, I think those long rest periods, like you're saying, is, is so important. And, and people don't realize how, you know, if the bison, for example, like came through, they may have grazed, you know, it down pretty significantly, but then they may have not come back for two, three, four years. Like who knows? It, and it depends on those weather conditions. And like you're saying, it's, there's no like answer. It's, it's always dynamic and you have to be able to, you know, adjust to, to nature. And the biodiversity is, to me, it's always a telling sign. I mean, we're podcasting out here and there's birds just chirping everywhere. It's, it's beautiful. And it's like, you know, we talk about quantifying things and, you know, you can get the lab analysis and all these things done, but you can really just pay attention to what's going on in, in the ecosystem, it's especially like the dung beetles and the microorganisms. That's when you really see you know, that proliferation of life. And it's, you know, incredible because you're saying that on land that was sprayed with chemicals for, for so long. And I totally um, can see that connection with, you know, the caretakers, of course, developing cancer, which is so sad, but you know, that's what you expect, but it really doesn't take that long for a lot of life to, to reappear. And on that, you know, no, I know I was on that tour in the beef initiative. And I remember we were talking about, you know, multi-species grazing a little bit and how the flies, if you, you know, graze, of course, you know, chickens or, or some, you know, poultry after, um, cattle, for example, or, uh, just a different species. And we've talked about that on this podcast. Um, it can help, you know, reduce that, you know, fly exposure and they eat the fly larva. Is that something you've thought about more in the past year? And I know you have hogs now and yeah, I'm curious, what else are you thinking about in terms of expanding and, and perhaps the multi-species grazing front? Yeah. So on our home place, we're, uh, we just got approved for a grant to put in some stock water infrastructure and interior fencing, which will help us to be able to do chickens behind the cattle. The problem on that property that we are at Rancho Largo is um, as of now, the landowner is not interested in putting in the infrastructure to be able to pull chicken tractors around. I think that would be a no brainer. I mean, and it works because we've done it here on, on our place in on a small scale and the chickens following the cattle, pecking and scratching the the maggots and the and the dung pats, is phenomenal. But since we stopped doing any sort of insecticides at all on our cattle, uh, the dung beetles do a fantastic job. And what I'm finding is now we have songbirds, r- robins, um, 
magpies, crows, ravens scratching in the dung pats and eating the maggots also. So by making an environment that's healthy for them, then the birds that live there in, in the wild are actually doing some of that work that the domesticated birds would be doing for us. Um, and so that's pretty exciting, you know, and, and I think um, they ended up getting that ranch Audubon, Audubon certified. And so now it's, you know, Audubon certified bird friendly practices which is amazing because the the different species of birds that you see down there on that place is, I mean, when I'm done irrigating, if I have a time, I just sit down and just take it in. I mean, needle rock in the background, the sound of cows grazing in the grass and all kinds of birds, you know, whether it's wild turkeys and everything, just it, it is, it's amazing that if you just take the time to take it in, how this is really God's work. I mean, it isn't by accident that I'm doing what I'm doing. There are times when you have those immense lows because you've had a bad day or you something's wrecked on an irrigation system or you've lost a calf or whatever. And you're like, these are the trials to help the successes and the triumphs just be that much more powerful. And um, I got an email that that I've been selected as the the Delta County conservation district rancher of the year so the annual meeting and awards assembly is this weekend and and I, I am i number one i was completely humbled by that but that also helps drive me to want to do more i mean i'm very community minded i'm on the board of directors for many different um agricultural educational um and also just infrastructure boards of directors because you can't bitch about what's wrong if you're not willing to fix it or help fix it or, or troubleshoot and, and find out and work with people and, and uh, educate and all of those things. And, and being on podcasts has just been a fantastic opportunity for me. And then the friends and the connections that I make and the people that I'm able to, to reach and impact really gives me hope that we can steer this ship. Because right now we're on this giant ship that just feels like it's getting ready to crash into land. And there's more and more and more of us that are getting some skin in the game and we're in the water paddling as hard as we can, trying to steer this ship back on course, you know, and, and I think we're going to do it. Unfortunately, I think it's going to get a lot uglier before it starts to get prettier, but between the regenerative ag, you know, the people that are really and truly putting in the work to do it and Bitcoin, I am, I am very hopeful that my kids will not suffer all of the same atrocities that our federal government has imposed upon us. And uh, it, it's, but they know what they're in for. Nobody is going at this blindly that has anything to do with me because I want to share my story with them and I want to share my successes with them. And of course I want to share our product with them because I want people to be healthy. I want people to get off of this sick, you know, fiat food train that they're on. And it's, it's an amazing life. It really is. Yeah. I mean, those are some powerful statements right there. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, um, 
I think it's important to be optimistic. I think in the Bitcoin community, the health community, I see sometimes a lot of negativity around the future. Um, I don't think that's very conducive to a positive environment or mindset, especially when you're trying to bring other people on board. Um, I think it's important to know that we have you know, a tremendous uh, battle and we have all these challenges in front of us. But if you just look at you know, what's transpired in the past couple of years or in your own life, what's transpired in the past 12 months, you know, the amount we can accomplish um, and we have in just a small niche community is extraordinary. And I, it's almost unbelievable, really, the connections you make and the you know, people you can infect with this. You know, it's really an, an infectious you know, mindset. And, and that's what's so great about, you know, doing stuff like this because education is, is ultimately empowering. Knowledge is empowering. And for the most part, people are just not aware of what's going on because the traditional education system doesn't teach you any of this. We're so disconnected. You know, most of the people are just living in cities, you know, watching Netflix, just going through the motions, you know, it's, and it's quite sad. And a lot of them, if you just brought them out here and sat on your porch right now and just say, you know, take this in for like 15 minutes, like kind of you're saying, and I think it would really impact someone like on a, on a deep spiritual level and then the want to do good. And yeah, a lot of people have good in their hearts. They're just, you know, in the wrong mindset, you know, like, vegans, for example, you know, are an easy scapegoat and people to trash on, but they, they want to do good in their heart. And there's, of course, a spectrum, but it's just so much misinformation. And you really just have to go directly to the source, which is why, you know, it's really cool. And the whole observational science thing is, is so um, important to me, because it's like you can't, you can't really argue against nature and what nature does. That's the ultimate proof of work, in, in my opinion. And um, it's it's awesome to see this kind of, you know, growing and, and this hopefully this interest continues. Um, but yeah, Jason, thanks so much for, for the great conversation. Where can people find you? Where can people buy your meat? Um, yeah. So we have a uh, Rick Ranch's Google business website and um, you can send me a, a direct message right there. Send me an email. Um, I'm at Jason Rick beef, bees and Bitcoin on Twitter, you know, Rick ranches on Instagram and in Facebook. Um, I have a few videos on YouTube and a few videos on TikTok as well. Um, and then we have a rickranches.com website that one of our uh, fellow plebs has built for us that we're still working on. Um, and, and just just really thank you, Tristan, for everything that you're doing. I know we've had a fantastic conversation here last July, you know, and, and really got to, to be become kindred spirits and then, you know, bounce ideas and things off of each other since then. And I really appreciate that because you, you approach things as a systems-based thinker from a solution standpoint. And I really appreciate that, you know, for me being in this, when you're immersed in it, it's easy to get completely buried in the work of what I'm doing, but to have someone with some interesting and um, exciting information and introspection to be able to share things with, I really appreciate that. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you, Jason. I mean, circling back here, it's it's uh, it's so rewarding. I mean, this is what it's all about, and I love connecting with people and 
sharing, you know, these experiences. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited what we can accomplish. And just for everyone, that's W-R-I-C-H, right, Rick? Um, so make sure you spell that right. Don't hesitate to reach out. Jason is a great guy. And yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time.